everyone. This is William L. Myers, Jr., and welcome to Writing Wrongs on the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. Today, I have the special privilege of talking with Hillary Davidson, who is the best-selling author of One Small Sacrifice and the winner of two Anthony Awards. Hillary is a fellow Thomas and Mercer author, and she just published a, a novel, Don't Look Down, which I read and really enjoyed. And I'm going to talk to Hillary about the book and about her and about writing and, and anything else we find interesting. Hillary, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me on the show, Bill. Um, you're very welcome. So let me start with this. Um, tell us a little bit about where you grew up, and how it is you got into writing. Oh, gosh. So if I'm being honest, I wanted to be a writer from the time I was a kid. Um, I grew up in Toronto, and that was sort of, I think, always in, in my mind's eye what the dream job was. But I never thought that I could make a living writing. And so in terms of um, going through school, I ended up studying to become an editor. And I worked at a couple of different magazines. I actually came to New York and interned at Harper's Magazine and then got a job back in Toronto at a well-known magazine there called Canadian Living. And after being an editor for a few years, I just sort of, I think the, the writing bug hit me hard. And I saw other you know, writers doing it. I was working with writers who were doing it. And so I quit my job to freelance. And it was a terrifying thing to do because I was single at the time. And if I didn't make rent, then, you know, I was the only one who, you know, was on the hook for that. And, uh, you know, definitely a frightening experience in that way. But so rewarding in that I, you know, I got to sort of reach for my dream. Um, though my writing for a very long time was nonfiction. Um, I used to write guidebooks for the Fromer's Travel Guides, and actually wrote 17 of those over the years. Oh, wow. um, and I had, yeah, it was great. Uh, the, the, if I'm being honest, a lot of people think, oh, that's so glamorous, you go everywhere. No, I started out writing a guidebook about my hometown of Toronto. And so um, <laughs> that was actually, you know, everyone thinks, oh, you get to travel. And I would joke about it saying the way I broke into travel writing, honestly, was about writing about a city that most other people didn't know well, but that was filled with interesting places and people and museums. So I really kind of milked that for all it was worth. And it led me into other um, great gigs where I did get to travel quite a bit. I was the honeymoon columnist for Martha Stewart Weddings for years. And I got oh, wow. to write for an amazing array of magazines from you know, American archaeology to discover you know, all kinds of stuff. Um, but I, I realized after I'd been at it for a few years that um, even more than just wanting to write, I really wanted to write fiction. And that seemed like the most unrealistic of dreams. But um, I started through short stories. I basically started working on it as a kind of experiment because it's a little terrifying. You know, certainly over the years I'd sat down and started writing a novel and I would get a few chapters in and not know where it was going and I would set it aside. And I thought, 
you know, if I really sort of want to be serious about this, I need to finish a project. And finishing a short story is an awful lot less intimidating than finishing an entire novel that you're, you know, might be devoting years to. And so that was where I got my start. And, you know, it took me a long time to find a place that would publish me. Um, full disclosure, my first three short stories were published by Suglet Magazine, which was run by Todd okay. Robinson. And honestly, so many crime writers got their start with Todd at Suglet. It's just such an amazing um, sort of place to be published by. But I was very lucky because my first short story ended up in a best of the year anthology. And that was how my agent actually found me um, through that anthology. And that ended up leading uh, to me, you know, finally doing a book, and uh, you know, finally like getting uh, getting the chance to to explore fiction in a novel form. Yeah, and now and now you're published like me um, through Thomas and Mercer, which is which is a great publishing house. Um, yeah, let me, terrific. Let me ask you I, I will, To be completely honest, I was with Macmillan for my first four books, and now my most recent two have been with Thomas and Mercer. But, yeah, you're right. They, they have been fantastic to work with. Yeah, and it seems that a lot of established authors are going from traditional publishing houses to Thomas and Mercer now. Um, and um, I think that's an interesting development in our industry. Um, it let me, is. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say one of the things that kind of amazed me is how old school Thomas and Mercer is in some ways. And when people ask me about them, one of the things that I'm very upfront about admitting is that my first four books, um, you know, while I, you know, I love those books, that was great experience doing them, they were never edited. They were basically uh, taken into the publisher, copy edited, proofread, mm -hmm. but in terms of the story I was writing, there was never a developmental edit, and I've had that with both of my books at Thomas and & Mercer. And it's a long process to do that. It takes about two and a half, three months, but it's so rewarding. And so I, you know, when I describe sort of how they do things, it's interesting because it's such a modern company, but at the same time, they're doing some things in a very old school way. Yeah, and the the developmental developmental editors especially can can find plot flaws, flaws with character that you may not be able to see because you're so close to it, um, and you need exactly. you need that eye that's one step removed. That's exactly right. So let me ask you this: um, writing short stories is a is a very different skill set, I think, than writing a full length novel. How how did you how did you find writing a novel compared to writing short stories? And I don't want to downplay writing short stories because people I've spoken with have said it's very difficult. It's a real art to write a really good short story. I think probably the the way it helped me most was that I learned to tell stories in different styles and in different voices and through the eyes of different characters that were, you know, far apart in age and, you know, culture and ethnicity and, you know, every circumstance. So I would say that when I actually sat down then to write a novel, um, first it felt kind of like an amazing luxury to have sort of so much space. Um, the book was my first book, The Damage Done, came out in 2010, and that book is told through the eyes of just one character. It's a first-person story, and it really let me though explore this character in depth, um, and it just felt sort of so much uh, luxury in that. When you're writing a short story, you have to really pull people in quickly, and you don't have sort of the room to world build. 
world the same way. Um, you you know you're you're kind of limited just by the the scope of it. You're working with three thousand words or five thousand words or whatever the count is. You can't really branch out into other characters and um, aspects of a person's world. So it it actually felt kind of luxurious. But there's also that sort of point where. With a short story, I feel like I can hold the whole thing in my head. And when I'm right. writing a novel, I have never felt that way. You know, six books in, I still honestly wonder each time I sit down, like, is this an idea that I will be able to see through to completion? Am I actually going to be able to do that? And both One Small Sacrifice and Don't Look Down are more complicated books because they're told in close third person through the eyes of multiple characters. And right. so, um, you know, it's it's actually I, I I felt like wow, this is a great way to tell the story uh, because it really propels the action. And instead of having things happen off stage, which almost just has to happen when you're only writing from the point of view of one character, you know, they can't be there for everything that happens. Uh, it felt like wow, I can really have someone that you know whatever is the most exciting thing at that time. There's going to be somebody there with eyes on it. But I realize it's actually like building a clock where everything has to work with the most amazing precision to make it work. And it was a really tricky way of writing a book. And I actually uh, yeah, I give my editor um, at Thomas & Mercer full credit from the, for this because when she read the first book, she said, you know, this really this needs to be a series. Would you consider writing it that way? And uh, I actually stopped and thought, oh, my goodness, this is going to be terrifying. I wasn't sure if I could do it the, the first time. Um, you know, it's it's hard to, to actually, you know, do a series like this. But I, I kind of felt like welcome. I guess I welcomed the challenge because it's so exciting in terms of pacing and I think readers tend to have a natural sympathy for the character that they're following. And so it really lets you um, sharpen sort of people's perceptions when they're um, seeing things through the eyes of diametrically opposed characters. And in Don't Look Down, you're seeing things from the point of view of the police who are sort of following the suspect and trying to catch the suspect, and from the main suspect's point of view as well. And I think there's sort of an understanding of everyone's situation in a way, whether you agree with them or not is a different matter, but you actually kind of have a, a sympathy for the characters that you, that you follow, and you end up sort of, I guess, um, understanding where they're coming from at the very least. Yeah, and I thought even if they've I really, done terrible I, things, I should add. <laughs> <laughs> even if they've done terrible things, um, yeah, yeah. I really enjoyed. I enjoyed. Don't look down. I liked Joe Griever, the protagonist, and we'll talk about her. I also liked the two the two detectives, Sharon Sterling and Raphael Mendoza. Um, when you wrote Joe Griever, how much about her did you know when you started the book? And how much did you learn about her as the story unfolded? That's such a great question because for me, any story that I tell, whether it's a short story or a novel, usually starts with the character. And so when I'd originally envisioned this book, um, before it became part of a series, I was just envisioning telling the story through Joe's eyes as 
a woman who, she's a young woman, but she's founded her own company and she's very successful and she's being blackmailed. And the very beginning of Don't Look Down, she's actually meeting with her blackmailer and she doesn't know if this is a person from her past or sort of how the circumstances came about that this person has um, sort of video and photographs of her that she doesn't want getting out. But she's sort of um, someone who's maintained... um, like a, a facade of like a very successful person. I knew all of that about her going in. I knew that she was someone who'd come from a broken home and that her parents had died when she was young. I knew that she'd come to New York as a teenager looking for an older relative to take care of her and that that older relative had betrayed her and basically um, sold her out and trafficked her. I don't think it's too spoilery to, to talk about that because that comes up in Chapter 1 in the book. Um, so these were the things that I knew about her going in. I had a really strong sense of who she was. Plot-wise, though, the one thing I didn't know, I, I was thinking, well, what would be so bad that a person would be willing even to kill for, um, you know, in terms of like a secret that could come out about them? Because in some ways we live in such an open age. People put their lives out there on social media and you know quite honestly she was victimized as a teenager um you know this was done to her she was basically the victim in a series of crimes so while she might want to keep that quiet it's certainly you know the shame is not hers she has no reason to feel you know bad in any way that other people you know were criminals and behaved in a horrible way to her so i actually had to that that was part of the plotting as i was going through the book i was actually writing it and not aware of what what it was that was so terrible that was one of the things that i i think i was about halfway through the book before i realized what it was and so it it's funny because in some ways when i write a character like that it's almost like a friend, like someone that you've met and you get to know them and you have impressions of them. And the more time you spend together, the more you learn about them, but they don't reveal themselves all at once. You actually do have to spend a fair amount of time sort of with them, you know, on your shoulder or in the back of your mind. Um, And it's kind of what I do. Like when I have a character like that in mind, even just as I go through my day, I'm thinking about like, well, how would they think of this news story or how would they respond in this situation? So I actually spent a lot of time with her, with Joe Griever, before she fully sort of opened up to me. And what she what she faces, and, and you brought this up a little bit, um, she was victimized as a young girl, and there's evidence of it, evidence that can be shared and spread, and that's how she can be blackmailed. And in that way, she's kind of facing a potential problem that a, a lot of young people face today who create, you know, these images of themselves on, you know, on all the social media sites. They do it voluntarily. She didn't do it voluntarily, but the, the danger is still the same that in this transparent society we live in, and you're so right about that, a very deep secret can come to light and ruin an otherwise completely successful person. Right, and we've seen real-life examples. Like just last year, there was a congresswoman who, I think it was Congresswoman Katie Porter, who had to resign her seat in Congress, and it was because her husband had released images of her as sort of a, 
like a revenge porn kind of thing. And, you know, that ended up, um, I think it was like she was involved with her assistant or someone who was involved in her campaign. But it was that sort of thing where, um, again, like you say, we live in a really – um, sort of era where people put an awful lot of information in social media, and quite honestly, one of the most amazing things that I've learned, like from you know cops that I talk to, is that a lot of the forces now have social media squads where they're actually going through social media profiles and looking at what people post online. And you know, there's just a tremendous amount of information, and you know, criminals post a tremendous amount of information about themselves too. So. So it's it's a weird illusion I think we have in this day and age where on the one hand we feel like we can talk about things and people can be free to be who they are um, and yet at the same time that's not to say that there won't be something down the road that will trip you up whether it's an, it's an employer who you know suddenly won't hire someone because of you know, hinted at drug use or just, you know, something that might seem very minor, you know, to a college kid. Um, But, like, things like that trip people up, um, you know, down the road. And certainly in Don't Look Down, because it's, you know, it's not just about Joe being victimized. There was also, um, you know, there were things that she's done that she certainly uh, feels bad about and sort of like dark choices that she made that sort of to try to get herself out of a bad situation and I'm because of spoilers I don't want to be more um say too much about it but you know she does definitely have stuff that that shows her in a really bad light and someone else does have a hold of that and could basically tear her down tear her company down and because she hasn't been honest with people around her she hasn't been honest with the boyfriend that she lives with or with her best friend who she works with, she feels also that she could lose all of these relationships if people found out the truth about her. Right. And what I, what I like about her is she has these secrets, and in part they're, they're what motivated her to become so successful. At the right. same time, yeah. they pose the greatest threat to her. And she finds herself in the middle of this storm where there are a lot of forces aligned against her. She, she starts out the, you know, the focal point of, of a homicide investigation, so the police are after right. her. She has an angel investor who has secrets of her own. She has a boyfriend mm-hmm. who at times, you know, he's good to her, and at times he lets her down. His right. mother obviously doesn't like her that much. And she has the potential enemies who were blackmailing her. So she's got to navigate a minefield of potential threats and maintain her sanity at the same time. And, And you wrote her as being strong enough to do that. Um, but, but not strong in the sense of she's going to do it by hurting other people, but she's just going to plow through it and, do what she has to do. Um, And and my question to you is, how gratifying is it to you to be able to write a book that features a strong female protagonist? I mean, I think that when I I look at the characters in the book and sort of the – 
the, so the four points of view are, you know, Joe Graber, who you talked about, and Detective Sharon Sterling, Detective Rafael Mendoza, and then also um, Joe's boyfriend, Cal McGarren. I feel like um, both Joe and Sharon are just tremendously strong female characters, and it's interesting that they're at such odds with each other because, um, so uh, just sort of to put the scenario together I mentioned that Joe's being blackmailed and at the very beginning of the book she goes to an apartment to meet with her blackmailer she's hoping to pay this person off get what they have give them a big bag of money and sort of end everything and that's kind of what she's been promised but everything goes sideways and it ends up in a violent altercation and when the police come to the apartment they find a man's dead body he's been shot and uh, there's, you know, a witness, eyewitness who's seen Joe Griever running down the fire escape from the apartment. And literally everything in the case points to Joe. There are photographs of a teenaged Joe, um, you know, back when she was being trafficked in the apartment. Her business card is in the man's pocket. Um, her fingerprints are there. Her blood is there because she was shot um, before she escaped. And so literally everything is sort of just saying this is the most obvious crime in the world. You have no doubt whatsoever. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. And yet when, you know, Detective Sharon Sterling gets on the scene, um, she is someone who is the most determined, tenacious detective you could imagine. And it bothers her. There are a couple, like just a couple of small things that don't add up. Um, and I don't, I'll give one small example because I don't want to get into spoilers for the book, but back at Joe's um, apartment later, I mean, they, they have the, the weapon. They find the weapon in Joe's apartment, the weapon that shot the man and killed him. Um, but the bullets that Sharon finds in the apartment don't match the gun. And right. for Sharon, this is something that's just like, this is really strange. And some of the evidence strikes her as just a little too convenient, like, wow, how careless. This person would just leave these photographs of herself lying around out in the open to be discovered. And there are just things about it that don't sit right with her. And, I mean, Jo is strong, and she's got a powerful sense of self-preservation. Sharon is strong and has a powerful sense of justice. And so while she most certainly does not want Joe Griever to get away, and the first thing she does is track her down, you know, that is her mission for the first part of the book, the questions don't dissipate. And even though, I mean, the police that she works with, um, the DA's office, everybody would like to wrap this case up and get it done, like just get it over with. Sharon is strong enough to stand up to that and say, no, I'm not comfortable with, um, you know, closing the case right now. And so I I feel like even though they're enemies for much of the book, um, you have these two really strong women that are facing off. But you see circumstances through both of their eyes and you understand what's going on in their heads and why they're doing what they're doing and I hope that that's really satisfying for people to read because to to write these two characters um, whose action I think is really justified when you see the circumstances that they're in you know they they both are acting in in ways I think that people can understand Um, but there there is definitely something satisfying writing these sort of bold um, characters that you know that won't give up they they are you know tenacious and they will see things through um and yeah you're right they they really are strong so let me ask you this 
the ending to me was very satisfying. You brought all the loose ends together, and there are a lot of different moving parts in the book. When you started out <laughs> writing the book, um, how how clear were you on how the ending was going to work out, and how much of this complicated ending kind of came to you as as you wrote the book? So when I started the book, I knew the opening scenario and I knew the end point. I knew basically where the characters should be at the end of the book. I sort of had the, you know, I, I knew who the big bad was. I knew that sort of thing. I did not know how these things fit together or how I was going to get from point A to point B. Um, a lot of the mechanics, a lot of the stuff that you're saying, like all the complications, like these different threads, that spins out while I'm writing. And it makes writing a first draft, I mean, I always feel when they're done, like, oh, what a pleasure, that was so great. I don't feel that they're great while they're working on them. I feel miserable. I feel sort of tormented <laughs> by possibility. <laughs> I'm always, right. you know, what, what, if, what if I explore this and what if I explore that? And, I, you know, sometimes I do find myself going down blind alleys. So I knew that I had this sort of um, scenario where the reader is seeing a crime happen in Chapter 1. Then they see what looks like an airtight case, and the reader is thinking, yeah, that's basically this is following up from what I saw. And then about a third of the way through, everything is turned on its head. And I had no idea how I was going to do that. And it took me, um, I'd say, uh, two or three drafts before I was able to show it you know, to someone and, and basically feel like it was doing what I wanted it to do. None of that stuff is obvious to me. Um, I don't really, when I say I have a strong grasp of the character, I don't have a strong grasp of the plot. And when uh, I've tried okay. to outline, I always end up um, changing my outline. I literally have never managed to stick to an outline um, throughout the course of a book. And so like it real is life. like a... Yeah, yeah, it's it's a trial and error, and I try to be upfront about it because I think a lot of people, when they um, read a book and when they're thinking, well, I would like to write a book, but I, I don't know enough, I don't know how to do this. It's like, you know what? People writing books don't know how to do this either, and you're just inventing it as you go along. And sometimes um, when I'm writing the book in the first draft, I'll skip ahead a couple of chapters because I can't figure out the puzzle that's right in front of me, but I know what's supposed to happen with another character a little further forward and it's later that oh when i've spent time with them and i you know i get right. what's going on that'll come back and fill it in but yeah at this point with you know this i mean this is my sixth book and i feel like um instead of hitting my head against the wall which is what i used to do with my first couple of books if i couldn't figure something out i just got stuck now i feel free like just move ahead to the point where you know where the story picks up and go back to it later well, that's great, and that's that's a great a great point to wrap this up. I want to tell everyone, you've been listening to Hillary Davidson. We've been talking about her journey as a writer, about how she writes, and about her latest novel, Don't Look Down. Hillary, will you tell people your social media credentials and how they can buy the book? Yeah, so um, you can find me. I have a website, which is just my name, HillaryDavidson.com. 
I'm on Twitter as Hillary Davidson. Um, I'm on Facebook as Hillary Davidson Author, and on Instagram as Hillary Davidson Books. And there are links. Uh, if you go through my website, there are links to um, everywhere from you know Amazon, obviously, but also IndieBound, which is a if you want to buy a book through an independent store, um, you know there are also links to do that. So you would find all of those through HillaryDavidson.com. Okay, thank you, Hillary. And this is William L. Myers, Jr. You've been listening to Writing Wrongs on the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. You can find me at WilliamLMyersJr.com or on Twitter at William Myers, Jr. And Hillary, thank you so much for talking to me about writing. Thank you so much for having me on the show. It was a pleasure. You're very welcome.